Well, every morning I get the local paper and I like to keep abreast of what's happening in Hobart. And one of the stories that I find the, the newspaper, the Mercury, does, as they have opportunity, is to put up the sentences that are often given for certain crimes. And you'll know this if you read the paper. And often I've seen ones where I, I scratch my head and wonder how the judge gave that decision. So it may be quite a significant beating of somebody, even it may be where someone has been killed, and then uh, the, the, the judge seems to give a very lenient sentence. And uh, to be honest, it makes me angry when I read it. I, I get furious. Um, I guess that how that judge comes to their decision that is, is, uh, is worked out according to certain principles. And I've got, uh, I understand that because from in, in many ways, what that judge is doing is a separate world to me. It's not a world that I get involved with very much. I don't know much about how they do. I've, I haven't, I've been to court a few times for various reasons. Um, and it, it's, it's a foreign world to me in many ways of what happens there and what can happen. And I guess what I'm hoping today is that uh, it, it may be that God's judgments in this world can be a bit strange to you. You can read some things like we've had read to us today some things and go, that's a bit shocking. You know, and how does that work itself out? Well, what are we meant to think of that? Uh, that's what I want us to, to think about today. I want us to think about the, the big topic of judgment. We'll be looking at God as judge in judgment. God is our creator. He's our father. He's our life. He's our, our joy. But he's also our judge. But as being made in the image of God, we also are his agents of judgment in this world. And so we're going to be looking at that as well. It's not just that God is judge and God brings judgment, but humans bring judgment as a result of God too. And so we're going to look at a little bit of that as well. It's actually a big subject. And so I'm just picking up a couple of threads today. Uh, but please, have your Bibles open because we're going to be looking at Bible verses and uh, we're going to, to make our start. So my first point is that God is a just judge. And what I mean by that is the Bible declares that God is our judge and that it's right and proper for him to be our judge. Now, why is this the case? Well, the first reason the Bible gives is that God is our creator. He's the one who made us and gives us life. And he's made us in his image. That is, humanity is made able to choose. We are made moral. God has made us moral. That's, that's what we are. Humans are moral. And it doesn't matter what culture you go to, humans are working out some morality because that's that's what we do. And generally we've come to a fairly agreed morality. There might be some differences, but uh, we, we generally agree on most things uh, with our morality from just living in the world. Um, now, th there are options to this in our world. Th there's the naturalist option. This is the, the secular option uh, where we've just evolved for no reason. We're not here for any reason. We've just evolved. Life has just evolved. 
Now, under that model of thinking, under naturalism, under that secular model of thinking, we're not really moral. There is no absolute moral standard out there. Uh, we have morality because of evolution, uh, because it aids the passing on of genes. And so murder is not actually wrong. Right? You know, any crime you can think of, it's not actually wrong. It's just we, we happen to consider it to be wrong because it helps us to survive. So there's no absolute wrong there. And this is one of the challenges that modern philosophy has had. And in the end, they have to take what's called the leap of faith, where they just assign meaning and purpose and, and say that it, it is there. Um, other religions have different answers to this. So in Buddhism, they don't really talk about right and wrong. I see, see, right and wrong is a, a Christian idea. Uh, it's not a naturalist idea. It's not really a Buddhist idea. It's not there in all religions. In, in Buddhism, it, it speaks more about things that are skillful. There are technical Buddhist words for these. Things that are skillful in helping you reach enlightenment and things that are not skillful. And, and helping that and being part of that process is what's the best thing to do. But there's no real moral universe in Buddhism. You know that there is no moral um, absolute up there. There's a, a, a oneness that you want to enter into. But it's a very different way of thinking. So when I say that God has made us and we are moral, moral people, um, you must understand not everyone thinks like that. But the result is God has made us moral and so it's right and proper for our behaviour to be judged. You are a moral being. You know what is right and wrong. God has made you moral. And so when God judges you, that's actually right and proper. Now, since we are moral beings, sometimes we feel guilt. Guilt is part of having a morality. Um, and I want to say that it's actually healthy to feel guilty when you are. It is healthy to feel guilty when you are. Now, again, I say that because there can be a stream of self-help pop psychology out there that says, you know, you shouldn't feel bad about yourself. You know, you shouldn't, you know, it doesn't matter what it is. I know a man who has been terrible to two lots of women and left children all over the place, but he doesn't want to feel guilty about it. He refuses to feel guilty about it. Now, the problem is, of course, um, that that's not healthy, and so it messes him up, <laughs> right? So it, 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 it's healthy to feel guilty because God has made us responsible, and so judgment is, uh, is, is fair, fair and proper. And so that this is why we should know God's law, why we should read the Bible, so that we know what God has said, we can know how God wants us to live, we can have the right types of guilt, we don't get guilty over things we shouldn't, because as I said, ignoring and suppressing things doesn't help them to go away. It's not healthy to do that. Now, the second reason why uh, it's right and proper for God to judge is what we see in Psalm 7, verse 11. Let me just read it to you. It says, God is a righteous judge, a God who expresses his wrath every day. And, and that is, God is a righteous judge. He's righteous. It's not just that he made us as moral beings. But he, he is a righteous judge. He is a good judge. He is a judge who has all the information needed. He's a judge who makes the right decision. 
And so th that's actually a good thing to know, that God, is, God does what's right. He's a righteous judge. The plans that God say to us, that what this means in the future, God's plans, is that there is a day when God will call all of us to account for how we live. Let me just read to you from, John, uh, sorry, from Romans chapter 14, verse 10, where he says, For we will all stand before God's judgment seat, as it is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of themselves to God. So that this, this is our future. This is the future for all of us. You may not be a Christian here tonight, but I want to say this is your future, that God has made you a moral being. He's made you in his image. And we're going to stand before God to give an account of our life. I'm not going to be pursuing it now, but it's, as we were singing before, uh, Jesus will be our judge on that day. He is God come to, to bring this judgment now, this sometimes raises the question about the rightness of God's judgment. What about those people who have never heard? What about those people who have never heard the gospel? You know, people in some suburb of secular, um, maybe down Tarunaway, very secular part of Tasmania. Well, you've probably got more chance of the kids down there not hearing than in Africa. So you've been raised in a secular house in Taruna, secular parents who just right against the things of God and they've made sure that scripture is out of the school. They've made sure everything so that you will not be exposed to the word of God at all. What about that kid? What about that kid? I'd, I'd want to say there's hundreds of thousands of them in Australia whose parents have deliberately denied them the opportunity to hear about God. What about them? Well, what we know is that God is a fair judge and that he will judge people by what they do with what they can know. That's, I'm just giving you a summary here. God judges people by what they do with what they can know. And we can all know something about God from creation. I'm not going to pursue that further now. But we, we can know about God from creation. And that's testified to across the cultures of the world where people look at the world around them and think, where did it come from? You know, like they've got some understanding of God from this. Of course, for those of us who know more of God's word, then, uh, you know, we can be held more accountable. But what we can be sure is that God is fair. God is fair. And that nobody will complain when they are judged by God. That I can assure you. Whether you know a lot, whether you know a little, whether your parents did this, whether your parents did that, <clears throat> I can say that when God judges you, no one will complain because God's judgment will be fair. God's judgment will be fair. Now, I want to move on from there to, to seeing God's judgment work itself out in Scripture. Uh, now, as I, I assume you saw last week, that the first judgment of God against sin is actually death. And we see this in Genesis chapter 3, Psalm 90, other places where the wages of sin is death. And so we should always 
be sad and uncomfortable with death. We should always try to avoid death. We shouldn't go along with philosophies that say death is just a great thing. <laughs> it's just part of, part of the cycles of life. No, no, death is an aberration. It's not a good thing. When Jesus, who had the power to raise the dead, was at the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. So that, that's the first thing we see, that there's this, this judgment of death over the whole human race. Let me just read to you from Jeremiah 18, verse 7. We read about God judging the nations. It says here, uh, if at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted or torn down and destroyed, and if that nation I warn repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And so we see here that God judges nations. We see this in the story of Jonah, where God sends a prophet to the nation of, of the Ninevites in Assyria, and a word is given to that nation. So God judges Nations, there's a judgment on the whole race, but then individual nations are judged and held accountable. God raises up nations, he pulls them down. We see this in scripture as God dealing with this world. And then of course we've seen that God deals with individuals. God deals with individuals, which I've already mentioned. Now I wanted to talk about two types of judgment. God's fast judgment and God's slow judgment. Now we had the, the fast judgment before, didn't we? Where King Herod on a particular day comes out to the people and the people say to him, this is not the voice of a man, this is the voice of God. And Herod, because he didn't give thanks to God and rebuke them, is struck down. So that's in Acts chapter 12 that we saw before. Now you can hear a story like that, you know, this guy's going along and he, he makes some claim and then God strikes him down. And it's easy to doubt those types of stories. Maybe, you know, you're not a Christian, you hear that in the Bible and you go, really? It's, you know, right then and there? Uh, maybe you are a Christian and you go, really? Right then and there? Well, what's interesting is that this death of Herod is recorded by historians outside of the Bible as well. Herod was a major figure, he was a ruler at that time. And he's, he's actually recorded in the Jewish historian who writes about the year 90 AD and records what was known in Jerusalem. And he records about Herod's death as well. So I just thought I'd read you this out. It says here, On the second day, Herod put on a garment made wholly of silver and of a contexture truly wonderful and came into the theatre early in the morning at which time the silver in his garment being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it shone out after a surprising manner and, so, and was so resplendent as to spread a horror among those who looked intently upon it. And presently his flatterers cried out, one from one place and one from another, though not for his good, that he was a god. And they added, be thou merciful to us, for although we had hitherto reverenced thee only as a man, we, uh, we shall uh, henceforth own thee as superior to mortal na nature. Upon this, the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. 
a severe pain arose in his belly and it began in a most violent manner. He therefore looked upon his friends and said, I whom you call a God and commanded presently to depart this life. So that's odd, isn't it? That you've actually got this moment in the Bible where a guy receives the praise of God, accepts it, and bam, is struck down. And you think, yeah, yeah, whatever. But then it's actually recorded elsewhere. You know what? It happened. The Bible records genuine, real history. And when we can confirm it, it confirms it. And on this case, we can. Now, the point I just want to make here is sometimes God judges people quickly. So you take warning. You take warning. You might think, I can do this sin and you know, nothing's going to happen in the short term. It might. There are occasions where people have done things and the judgment comes pretty quick. So you should actually fear sinning. You should fear your judge because sometimes he judges quickly. Okay. Now, it's not always that way. Let me read to you from Genesis chapter 15. And this is when God is speaking to Abram about when Abram's descendants will go into the land. And there are people in the land who need to be dispossessed. And we read in verses 13 to 16, God explaining this to Abram. And he says, Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here because the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So when the Israelites went into the promised land, it wasn't just go in there and take the land. It was God was patiently waiting for those nations to repent he gave them four generations, so I think it works out about 400 years or whatever it is, however they, however they calculate it out. But it's a long period of time, giving those nations opportunities to repent, but then after a long period of time, they don't, and the judgment comes. So sometimes God's judgment takes a long time to come. Now, the Apostle Paul brings this up, and Peter, I'll just look at Paul's statement here. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, he says, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? You see, why is God slow in bringing his judgment on this earth? Why is he slow in bringing judgment day? It's... It's to give us an opportunity to repent. It's to give us an opportunity to turn back to God. It's to give us an opportunity to come to our senses. Right? So do not take God's tolerance and his patience as a sign that he won't judge. It's that he is slow and gracious to judgment. You see, you, you can turn to God today. He's giving you an opportunity to turn to you 
today. So this is good news for us. I now want to move on, and, and this is just a real quick Bible flick I want us to do here. I, I want us to look at ourselves now, so I'm sort of changing tact a bit and, and looking at how we are involved in judgment now in the earth. So a couple of quick verses, and again, I'm not going to make many statements about these because there's a few of them, but I'll, I want to give you a sweep as part of my uh, brief in covering judgment. In Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5, it says, Woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger, in whose hand is the club of my wrath. I sent him against an un ungodly, uh, a godless nation. I dispatch him against people who anger me. And it talks about how God has used one nation to judge another. Okay. Now, I'm going to get a little bit closer to home. Come across to Proverbs. Proverbs 13, verse uh, uh, 24. Proverbs 13, 24. He who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is careful to discipline him. Let's look at Romans 13, verse 4. Romans 13, verse 4. Speaking of the government, for he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. And then I'll go across to finish up with 1 Corinthians uh, 5. Again, just a very brief skim across here. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12. The Apostle Paul writes, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? Now, my, my point here is just that many of us are in positions where we are meant to represent God's judgment. It can work itself out differently in different places, but judgment is not just simply with God. It's also amongst us. There's meant to be church discipline if required, by the elders of this church. Uh, the police are meant to bring God's, uh, are meant to represent God's judgment and ju God's justice in this world. This is part of what it means to be made in the image of God and part of the way that we, in different ways, as parents, as governments, as church leaders, uh, are meant to represent God's judgment in this world. So we need to pray for our government. We need to pray for them. We need to pray for our church leaders. We need to pray for our parents. It's not easy doing this type of thing when you're a sinner. It's not easy. We need to be praying that they'll do a good job. Now, I need to keep moving through. We had one of the readings before, and the first reading was about the disobedient son. And I heard a few people gasp <laughs> where this son goes out you know, he's really one of the lads, you know. You can imagine him building the house during the week, then on the weekend, you know, getting on the, I won't say what he's getting on, but getting on the, getting on the, the alcohol and drinking and, uh, you know, seeing if he's going to be lucky, you know, the sexual immorality that comes with that and maybe, you know, smoking pot with his friends and all this stuff and, and all that. And, and, and it says, 
if, the, if, the, if that son won't listen, stone him to death. It can sound pretty harsh, can't it? Sound harsh. Well, what I want to say is, first of all, these judgments, if we look in Deuteronomy 16, verse 18, says that they're meant to be mediated through a judge. So when we read these judgments of God in the Bible, it's also within the context that there are judges who take the whole context into situation. But that being said, I still want to say that we shouldn't too quickly dismiss God's laws because God's laws are just. How many people actually in our culture die because of drunken behaviour and drug use? Let's just actually get a bit serious about this now. How much domestic violence is there because of these young boys and girls who are getting into the drugs, getting into the, the, the drinking, really making that drunken, debauched behaviour part of their lifestyle, things which are celebrated in our movies and, you know, that type of thing. Uh, what type of destruction comes there? A lot of destruction. I did a, a search on this, uh, and the government actually has all these statistics. You can go and look them up. There are so many reports on this. Uh, approximately 5,500 deaths per year. Over 150,000 hospital admissions are related just to alcohol, not to drugs in general, but just to alcohol. Uh, and there's, it, it costs about $14 billion a year. Now, if you complain that the government should be you know, making hospitals better, you can actually get rid of a huge proportion of people in hospital just from the effects of alcohol. In fact, if the effects of alcohol and drugs were taken out, we'd probably be getting your surgeries done straight away. Right? So let's not muck around here. When we think that God's laws are harsh, we need to put them in the perspective that what we follow is insane. The models that we have, the, the, the results of what we are doing are madness and what's happening in our culture and the destruction that it's causing, the unwanted pregnancies, the resulting abortions, like all those things which come out of this, which we can sort of celebrate in music and song and in movies and say, he's just one of the lads, she's just one of the girls going out. So what I'm saying is that look, let's not be too harsh on what the Bible says. Let's be honest about what the secular world is doing at this point because I want to say it is death and destruction. I'm going to say uh, something I often see in the newspaper and I want you to see if you've, maybe you've read it and maybe you can finish this. It's almost like a proverb. Uh, people who are against the, word, the Bible, they'll say, an eye for an eye leaves everyone blind. This is what they'll say. They've taken the Bible's phrase, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, which is the standard of justice the Bible gives, and they've, they've sort of modified it in our secular world and they've said, an eye for an eye leaves everyone blind. And, and that's what I read in the newspaper, you know, regularly. Well, I want to say that's false. An eye for an eye does not leave everyone blind. What standard are you going to use? An eye for an eye means the punishment must fit the crime. That's what it means. If someone takes out your eye, you can't kill them. Someone takes out your eye, you don't do nothing. What do you do? It's got to be what's called proportional punishment. Proportional punishment. 
So again, don't just follow our world that hates the idea of retributive punishment because it's actually the only type of punishment that, that's valid. You have to have punishment that is proportional to what's been done. That is justice. My last example is um, we sometimes get readings from the Old Testament. So in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 2 and 3, the prophet Samuel commands King Saul to go and kill the Amalekites. And it's go out and kill men, women, children, cattle, sheep and donkeys. And so you read that and you say, where's the justice of God in that? How, you know, how is God a God just? I've got four points to respond just very briefly. First of all, I'd say that as Christians, we find that confronting too. You read that and in today's world, we, we find that confronting. But the Bible does assure us that it is just. And we need to put that in there as well, that this is just. And we need to be assured of that. We also need to be assured that this has actually come in the period of time, hundreds of years after the act was done. So there's been a long time for this aminosity with the Amalekites to change. But they have maintained their hostility. So there's been a long time for repentance. And so that's the broader context that these things can be understood even when we find them confronting. And the result should be for us that we should fear God. We should fear God because when his judgment comes, it can be harsh. When his judgment comes, it can be harsh. I want to finish up now by talking about uh, judgment and salvation. Now, what's the way forward for us as Christians? Well, what's the way forward for us? Because as we've seen, we, we are sinners. We're under the judgment of death. We, we fail to live as we should in this world. We are sinners who are going to stand before God and our sins will be exposed. What's the way forward? Well, there are really two things that the Bible says are the way forward. The first is that God requires repentance. God requires repentance. And you see this in the prophets where they call upon Israel to repent. Uh, the book of Deuteronomy finishes by saying um, when Israel repents, then the blessings of God are going to come. So we need repentance. The second thing we need is uh, payment for sin. We need our sins to be paid for so that we don't have to pay for them. So the judgment doesn't come upon us. Now, we are unable to do this. And so what we see is that God has done it for us. And so all of the Gospels begin with Jesus, begin with Jesus being the truly repentant man. You remember that Jesus comes to John the Baptist to get baptised, a baptism of repentance. And John says, why, why are you asking me to baptise you? But Jesus is associating with sinners and he is the truly repentant Israelite. He is the truly repentant man. He goes into the desert. He's tempted for 40 days. He doesn't sin. He is the repentant, sinless man. Jesus actually offers the true 
repentance and holiness and righteous life to God that we have failed to do. And his righteousness is given to us when we join ourselves to him. This is what God does for us. He gives us the true man, the perfected man. And of course, this man, Jesus, completes his task by offering himself as a sinless sacrifice on our behalf so that the judgment of God can fall on him rather than on us. He lives the righteous life. He lives the the, the truly repentant, sinless life and offers himself as a sacrifice for sin for us. And this is the heart of the cross. It is Jesus dying on the cross to pay for our sins. Yes, his death is an example to us, but fundamentally, it's a payment for our sins. And this is how the justice of God is uh, dealt with for us. Jesus lives the obedient life, and that's given to us. Jesus dies on the cross for us, so that God's judgment and justice is met in us. So to conclude, today we've been thinking about judgment. We've seen that our creator is a righteous judge and we can have full confidence that he will judge rightly. We can trust in that. It's both a a frightening thing but also a comforting thing that he is the righteous judge. We've seen that God's made us moral beings and that it's right and proper for us to be held accountable. We've seen that even though we've sinned, God has done something to save us, to save us from his righteous judgment. And that is he sent the Lord Jesus Christ, that perfect man, that perfect offering for sin, so that we may be saved and have peace with our great God and judge. Amen.